0: Welcome to the Mind Medicine Podcast, where we bring you breakthrough innovations in the field of mental health and well-being. I'm your host, Tommy Moore, bioscience educator and advocate for advancing the state of human health and psychology. This podcast is made possible by Mind Medicine Australia, a not-for-profit organization founded to increase medical access to and awareness of psychedelic-assisted therapies. In furtherance of this mission, this podcast aims to facilitate engagement between clinicians, researchers, mental health practitioners, and leaders in psychedelic assisted therapies to provide expert opinion, share research results, and ultimately help to educate the public about potential new opportunities in patient treatment. All right, with all of that said, welcome to this episode, a particularly special episode. Because if you have clicked on this episode and are obviously listening to this episode with my voice in your ears and your mind, then James Fadiman is likely to be someone that you know of. James Fadiman is a pioneer in the space of psychedelic therapy and spirituality in many respects. And He's also known as the father of microdosing for his incredible explorations and scientific discoveries and studies on microdosing. So it is and was my delight to be able to have a conversation with James Fadiman. His first book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, was the very first psychedelic related book that I had ever read. And in many ways paved the future for me and my future interest within this space. So to have the opportunity to sit down with Jim was truly remarkable. And uh, I thoroughly appreciate how much time and energy he put into this episode. It was something that we had to book many, many months in advance and we scheduled the date late last year. And it was a date that we had both highlighted on our calendars, and it was certainly worth it because this man is truly remarkable. his knowledge and his conversational and communicative ability to help us understand and conceptualize psychedelics in a very practical way. So throughout this conversation, we most certainly spoke about microdosing, what it is how it differs to psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, how it is used in both optimization and also healing. And from there we started to delve into Jim's more recent work, which is around selves. Now, one's typical notion of a self is often one that is related to the body and the mind. And this coherence and cooperation of mind, body, and spirit being our essential, cohesive self that we embody and behave in a way that we hope to be in alignment with each of those three dimensions, our mind, our body, and our self. However, Jim's recent work and his recent publication in his book called Your Symphony of Selves introduces a somewhat new way of imagining selfhood because our self, including our mind, our body and our spirit also involves how we use our self in different contexts. For example, I am a bioscience teacher. I have been for the last three or four years And I teach from ages 11 to 18. Now how I teach an 11 year old is going to be vastly different to how I teach an 18 year old. How I communicate with you as an audience and as a listener is quite different to how I teach. How I am embodying and aligning my mind, body and spirit to the particular behavior that will facilitate my audience is going to differ. How I chat with my parents versus how I chat with my dog or close friends or even the relationships that I have with all these different people and, and how they imagine me as a self. I also have to kind of represent in each individual context. So it is in my ability to adapt to a new self and to actually recognize what self that is within myself creates a catalogue of different selves in different situations. There is also a self that you embody when you are by yourself, when there is no one around you and perhaps you are home or you're writing or going for a walk and you aren't engaging in any particular external because it's in this self or this state of mind where we often have the most turbulence, where we often have the most arguments with ourselves and often very contradictory. And so this particular aspect of ourselves, or how we feel our emotional state or our state of mind when we're by ourselves, is going to be critically important if we're going to fulfill a healthy multiplicity of selves, because it's in this space where we generally recollect some of the conversations we may have had with other people, what we should have said, what we might have said differently, had we been in the right state of mind or had we been disciplined enough to act in a way that is aligned with who we think we are. But this is also the space that is incredibly difficult and challenging to change. Why is it? And why is it that ourself, when we're by ourselves, is the most difficult to change? Well, the only feedback that we have about the conversations that we have about ourselves are ourself. And so these rigid patterns of thoughts and emotions are very hardwired, especially if you're an adult and you're over the age of 25, it's likely that you have very rigid and robust ideas about who we think we are. And to change who we are, if that's something that we're even wanting to pursue, And it's likely that it's something that you're wanting to pursue if this state when you're by yourself is always creating this turbulence and disruption and dysregulation of your stress and your mood and all of those things, then that is the space that you need to enter. You can't expect to change your identity or change who you think you are unless that internal dialogue is coming up with a solution that is accurate and clear, and that your symphony of selves can embody and be aligned with and adapt to any situation that you're in. Now, this is of course getting very nuanced and complex, and I don't think selfhood is ever going to be a simple discussion, but it is nonetheless a very interesting discussion as we all have selves in different situations psychedelics can be the catalyst for self-identity change. It is certainly not the only way that you can change your identity and change ideas that you have about yourself, but it is one way and it is a way that helps you to open up the capacity for change because in a normal waking state, it is honestly really, really effortful and difficult to hone in on those painful, dysregulated states that are preventing our optimal healthy functionality as human beings in the world. This was a very long winded introduction, but I hope that this introduction helps you to conceptualize some of the ideas that Jim puts across throughout this episode, because oftentimes I was listening and had the counter argument about the essential one self that is, often written and discussed about in religious and spiritual texts in that this one essential self or this god or this universal mind is one and eternal before i go down another tangent of theology and religion and spirituality and god i will leave it there because we do discuss these topics throughout this conversation so thank you for bearing with me with this introduction. I hope that it helps as you listen through this conversation. So whatever the state of mind or self that you are currently embodying, I hope it aligns with the conversation that you're about to listen to with James Fadiman.
1: And where are you in Australia?
0: I am in a very small town called Geelong. I'm not sure if you've visited Australia all too many times, but it's about one hour south from Melbourne. So it's a region uh, called the South coast. So right. it's kind of um, probably about 15 to 20 minutes from, from the ocean. Um, a lot of surfers come in here. I'm not sure if you know the, the Rip Curl Pro surfing down I'm here.
1: I'm just trying to remember where I went out of Melbourne, which was where the fairy penguins come ashore.
0: Oh, yes, Phillip Island. Phillip Island. Yeah, wonderful. When did you get down here? Uh,
1: Well, I was, uh, there was an international, I guess, transpersonal psychology conference, and I was asked to be the master of ceremonies. And out of that, out of that was a a trip to Tasmania. And um, I fell in love with Tasmania, almost, almost literally moved my family there. Um, and then on one trip to Tasmania, I was in a, a bad car accident, so I know a lot about Launceston General Hospital, <laughs> among other things, and Hobart's Hospital.
0: Yeah, Tasmania is really, really beautiful, it's and Tasmania is wild still a lot of yeah. untouched area. Because um, I was there earlier this year, and you know, you drive around and you see a lot of roadkill, and you kind of feel bad about the roadkill, but that also means that. There's still there's so enough. many animals. Yeah, there's just there's... there's enough animals, right? Yeah, beautiful. All right, let's start with the uh, important questions first, shall we? Should I refer you as Jim or James Fetterman? uh Jim,
1: because I'm now talking to an Australian, <laughs> and we know better than to use any kind of pretentious thing, <laughs> <saying, laughs> let alone the horrors of being uh, a title. <laughs>
0: All right, Jim sounds excellent. All right, so I mean we've connected through Mind Medicine Australia and firstly I want to thank you for your involvement with um, Mind Medicine Australia really validates and and reassures everything that we're doing is robust and and it's accurate and it's really exciting to get people like you who've who've been in the game a very very long time and you know have done some incredible work over the past many many decades and you know we're we're fighting really hard, and that fight continues. So maybe let's start with how have you actually seen the progress in the psychedelic renaissance uh, per se in the last couple of decades?
1: Well, the last couple of decades was more like Moses wandering in the desert, kind of, and from the top of the hill you could see the city. Um, it it I, I'm I'm remembering a, a different a different modality, but uh physician friend of mine said, I'm now being invited to speak at the same conferences that wouldn't let me attend some years before. So that's the feeling, the the curious feeling. And and of course, this program is like part of it. uh, The information that a lot of us acquired when it was legal and kept alive when it was not uh, is now being asked for. And as my wife has said to me, Aren't you glad you lived long enough to see this turnaround? So f- moving from being a, a, a kind of an outlaw, not a very serious one, um, to dealing with questions about, you know, which psychedelic company stock do you think is going to do well in the next quarter? That's a very, very different world. Uh, so I'm particularly interested in seeing if Australia can... Uh, kind of basically leapfrog a lot of the nonsense, and so far it feels that way. That there's a movement moving quite quickly to actually doing um, well. It's called research, but it's really called confirmation because it's research that other people have done just fine in the last year or two. But each country um, seems to need to verify. You know that that Australians with depression are similar to Europeans or Americans with depression. So uh, very happy to see the research happening and also to see, in a sense, training with MindMed preceding um, the the ability to use any of it. And of course, there's no discussion that I've ever seen on MindMed with, and I've only been on a few times, uh, about the fact that Australians like everyone else Uh, have been experimenting on their own as well. And that it may not be generally well known, but the mimosa tree, Australian, um, has the largest amount of DMT in it of any plant we know. Uh, I personally have no connection to DMT and don't ask me, um, but I am, um, there is a company called Mimosa uh, which is not working with DMT at all, but that's where that little bit of trivia comes from. So, not only does Australia have, as we know, the world's most fascinating animals, but it looks like you have a fairly good series of plants as well.
0: <laughs> well, there you go. And I'm sure all the uh, community that are listening say, where, where do we find this mimosa tree? <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: well, um, since
1: I encourage people to go walking in trees, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it won't it it shouldn't be hard to find, but it's well worth the walk, and at uh, worst cases, you've had a wonderful walk in nature. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a, a Japanese term called forest bathing, and it sounded when I first listened to it, kind of like a little a, a bit of that kind of preciousness that Japanese ideas sometimes have. But it turns out that when you walk under trees, you are actually being bathed in um, healing substances, healing antiviral and antibacterial substances, because trees all the time are busy dealing with viruses and bacteria and have have accumulated, you know, over the the millions of years, defenses. So you're actually having a physiologically healing experience at the same time you're having an aesthetically uh, healing experience.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating.
1: yeah, and, and, and the forests in Australia um, are among the most, you know, wonderful to walk in that I've ever encountered.
0: Mm, certainly, and um, my background's actually in nutrition, and I'm always looking at, you know, the different plants and all the different compounds, and of course, like, you know, scientific reduc- reductionism is, is such that we like to isolate each different uh, compound and figure out its biological mechanism and, and so forth, but... You know so much of you know what's been taught throughout many cultures and, and throughout history um, is that you know the, the more we immerse and connect with our surroundings the, the healthier people we become and and that feeling of connection is is so vital
1: yeah well i think we're beginning to remember that we are actually one of the species and that and to the extent that we fit into the ecology everything does well, and to the extent that we overpopulate and and dominate and destroy the the ecology, everyone suffers. So one of the things um, there has been research in psychedelics that say people who have used higher dose psychedelics um, have a greater appreciation of nature. And a little more fun is they are much more likely to believe that intelligence not only is a human trait, but is also an animal trait and also a plant trait. Um, and I'll just give you one more that's fun. Um, fungi, mushrooms, apparently, um, let's see if I can say it without it sounding silly at first, they communicate with each other or with themselves because they're very large organisms. But it turns out that they uh, put out electrical signals and those signals, um, there's a there's like a vocabulary of signals, as we have a vocabulary of words or letters, and that different signals mean different things. Such as uh, over here, we've just found a delicious something that we're eating, and we'd like the rest of the local fungi of this species to know about it. So we're really looking at, um, as part of the Renaissance, a return to uh, but not only restoring the ecology but re- resuming our place in it
0: yeah certainly and there's theories around i mean that that fungi was you know our original ancestors so to speak and then that split into to humans and, and plants or animals and plants i should say so you know they're kind of this underground neural network that <laughs> have been communicating for you know millennia or perhaps billions of years and it's it's now that we're finding out that these communication and all these compounds that they're producing also manage to benefit us. So I think that's fantastic.
1: It is. It's quite remarkable. And uh, yay! Thank you, plants. Thank you, fungi. And uh, <laughs> thank you, Tommy, <laughs> for bringing that up.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. Now I see your room is full of lots of different books. And speaking of Intelligence. I'm sure there's, there's lots of intelligence all throughout those books there. So I actually want to ask you, how do you describe what you do now? You've, you've done oh. a lot of different work over the past number of decades, and you seem to have collected a lot of information and, and intelligence over the years. How do, you, how do you fill in a day these days?
1: Well, it's easier than usual. My kids, when they were growing up, said, you know, Dad, one of the hardest questions we get is, what does your father do? <laughs> because I had a lot of different jobs but at the moment I'm I'm I would say I'm a microdose researcher but that doesn't mean that I'm giving microdoses to anybody or that I have any affiliation with uh, laboratories or universities I have friends and I do advise but I'm taking in information from citizen scientists around the world about their experiences and their methods um, and the various groups that are forming to help one another. Uh, so I'm kind of sitting at this, uh, I think I'm kind of like the newsroom for microdosing. And so you know you've seen those like you know, military or space where there's like a hundred monitors and a bunch of guys running around. Well, I, I have one monitor, but it's the same notion with, which is information comes in that can help people and I try and move it through, of which this program is a model. <laughs>
0: Yeah, brilliant. So is that, I mean, how, how that is designed is that um, people are reporting their microdose e- experiences across the world and, and you're giving them a set of questions or how do you go about collecting that about type of information? Almost everything,
1: which is um, the microdose institute uh, in the Netherlands, for example, has um, offers microdoses to people with coaching and with advice and, um, and getting reports. So when they when I have a question, I ask them, "Do you have anyone in your several thousand people that you've worked with who had the following experience, or the following condition, or the following problem?" That's one group. There's a there's a, a number of groups now in South America. Um, there's an international uh, microdosing association uh, under formation, to for professionals around the world, um, and I have a site called microdosingpsychedelics.com. Which was used to um, to give people kind of safe and effective information, and also ask them to fill out a daily form uh, for up to a month. Um, so that was a large piece of our early data. And I get and also I'm I get mail. <laughs> uh, my book, *Psychedelic Explorer* Explorer's Guide, has now been around long enough. So that people will write me and say, you know, I've read your book and I want to tell you my story.
0: It's um the psychedelic explorers, guys. Was the the first book that I had purchased in the <laughs> psychedelic space, um, coincidentally, and it was it was at the time when I was living with my mom and dad still, and at that time they they didn't know my interest in in the space per se, and. I- they found the accompanying PDF. <laughs> it was kind of tucked <laughs> in my my little drawer. And I don't know what they were doing. Um, but they they were just like, Tommy, what's this psychedelic explorers card? What's all that about? And I was like, well, I think there's there's a lot we need to sit down and discuss before I start being defensive about it all. But um yeah, I mean it's it's an incredible, incredible book, and it really lays out very clearly. Um, the context by which um, psychedelics can and, and should be used. Because, I mean, right now we're, we're talking about two separate things. We started with microdosing and we're talking about Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, which is, I guess, more focused on the the higher sacred type journey. So perhaps let's first differentiate and the characteristics of each of those and what the, the proposed benefits of microdosing are um, sure. versus what the I guess, the intention behind a higher dose would be?
1: Well, uh, Psychedelic Explorer's Guide is really almost entirely uh, my high dose work, and that's all I was interested in for really decades. And I think it's a kind of um, celestial joke that I'm now working kind of at the total other end, uh, where one of the definitions of microdosing is it has no psychedelic effects, meaning it has uh, High-dose psychedelics are an enormous um, kind of explosion of of inner experience, so much so that you can't really function. And so we've developed over the years, the way you use them is is really lying down with music or with eye shades and having an inner, inner experience because what we now know is more parts of your brain communicate with more parts of your brain. And that gives you not only a whole lot of, of visual and auditory amazements, but it also leads to, to insights and to um, restoration of repressed memories, but it also um, bypasses the part of the brain which seems to be linked with personal identity, meaning the Jim Fatimanness is not my whole brain let alone most of my body has really never heard of me. But when you step outside that part of the brain, um, you don't vanish. Instead, what you seem to do is to expand your definition of of who you are. Uh, in Michael Pollan's book, he talks about an experience of his where he felt his his identity or his ego kind of spread all over the landscape like a coat of paint. And it's a, a, a nice description of one level of expanding your, your actuality of who you are. And if you you think about it, you know, you're immersed at the moment, we're both immersed in, in a huge amount of air, for example. Now, is that part of us? Well, I just took in some, is that part of me Mourn more me because it's inside of me, and you know one can get playful with that, but high doses tend to expand your vision of your your actuality, not your identity, not your not your what's on your birth certificate, but that same feeling you get um when you come out of like a forest into a beautiful sunset and you go <gasps> and you become not you but you become part of the what you just ex, what you're experiencing so higher doses have a lot of very powerful life-changing effects and they're now being both researched and um, hustled by lots of companies worldwide with all the wonderful benefits they may have microdosing is is the other end with microdosing you don't lose any of your ability to function, which is you can run heavy equipment, you can drive, you can and often do do coding and other high tech work, um, play with your children, uh, garden, cook and talk to your parents. All of those are not only normal, but somewhat better, somewhat more uh, facilitated. Microdosing seems to improve the system. It's a little bit like um, when you when you get your car tuned up, they don't really do much. They do a little tweak here a little tweak there. They maybe change a little oil. They change the pressure in your tires a pound or two. Um, but when you first drive it away, it feels a little different. Very quickly, you lose that awareness and it's just riding the way it does. But that kind of fine tuning of the whole system is more like what microdosing does. And there's a a very fine book called A Really Good Day. And um, it's a woman who was an attorney living in Berkeley, four children, um, and had used a lot of uh, kind of psychiatric medications less and less successfully. And what she talks about is on microdosing, there was nothing she could point to I mean, there's many things she pointed to, but nothing that overwhelming, but simply that she could realize that she was having good days and that she hadn't had good days for a long, long time. And at, at one point, uh, she is making breakfast for the kids before they go to school. And it's it's one of the times of the day when they know not to bother her because she doesn't really like doing this. And she is singing and she's having a nice time. And one of her kids looks at her and says, "Mom." is this one of your dose days and it was okay so she was still making breakfast for the kids with all that but her inner world was now um, in harmony with the rest of her life so microdosing has two major major groups who use it one are people who have mental or physical issues and the other people who are simply enhancing the quality of their life and they're, they're Really, now, thousands and thousands of both, and we're getting a lot of information,
0: yeah, certainly, and that kind of leads me to a part that i was was wanting to discuss with you because I mean we seem to to separate psychedelics in psychiatry versus psychedelics in optimization, whereas sometimes I feel like you know treating illness versus promoting wellness are one end of the same thing it's it's a matter of you know. Feeling more connected with yourself and and being able to em- embody yourself and understand mm-hmm. yourself in in a in a greater capacity. So, you know, sometimes it's obviously with with my in Australia our primary focus is you know to treat the vast amount of people with really difficult mental uh, health issues. So, I think despite it it seeming like it's quite a separate thing in that, you know, there's this, this population that are using it for optimization purposes, whether it be for improving concentration, focus, uh, creativity, etc. Um, I feel that it, it is kind of one end of the same thing, but I guess people are at different levels of health. And I just wanted to also come back to this um, notion that you kind of brought up as it related to our self-identity um because obviously you've you've also written another book somewhat recently about our symphony of selves, so yeah. I thought it was it was a good time to kind of touch in on that because you know this this part of our brain that that's being bypassed during a really high dose um, psychedelic experience um and often you know, when people kind of come into the, the neuroscience space and they say this part of the brain is for this or this part of the brain is for that, but it's often about the interplay between all of those parts. And you were also talking about before about this this interconnectivity between different parts of the brain. So it's it's often more about not necessarily, you know, turning down a particular part, but making it connect to different areas to then construct a new understanding of of what it really means to be a self so perhaps let's i guess open that conversation into what a self is because i guess there's there's lots of level of the self and we can go into you know emotional physical or or all of that so let
1: me me hold that off because at the (laughs) beginning of your discussion as you were making this transition you you talked about really this one of the central issues in psychedelic research, which is medicalization, or is our psychedelics good for people who are ill, deranged, uh, and somehow um, suboptimal? And there's a whole another use which is not being researched, uh, but is very popular with people, with citizen scientists, for people who whose lives are working fine and they're physiologically fine and they're mentally fine. And they do things to, to enhance their wellness. And those that second group doesn't fit the medical system. Now, I'm not sure about Australia, but one of the curious things in the American medical system and our legal medical system is there is no category to help people who are well be better. So. As soon as you make something medical, you, in a sense, eliminate a huge number of people who are improving their lives. And when someone says, you know, I got this foam mattress and my sleep is improved, um, that's huge. And they also have maybe sleep apnea for which they have either a machine or medication. And that's that's a defect, a weakness, an illness, which also can be improved. But the whole notion, my, my feeling is that your body, except for this little teeny area up here, this cortex, only wants to feel better. That's its entire uh, reason for being. It says, I want to heal. I don't want to have this cell destroyed. I don't really want to have cancer. Um, these little microplastics, which I'm noticing in the bloodstream, I, could, you know, I wish we didn't have them. Um, we, we are a wellness-seeking being not different from animals, plants, and fungi. So if psychedelics are helpful, they probably should be helpful for the whole being, and they are. And the particular uh, reason we we are so interested in the brain um, is that we can measure it. And if you say to a neuroscientist, and they usually don't like it when I do, um, the neurons that you're studying, which have a, a number for some reason, 5, A, are they only in the brain? And they say, no. And you say, are there more of them in the gut than in the brain? And they say, I don't want to discuss this. <laughs> because we, have, we, we all know, uh, you know, uh, when something goes wrong in your life, very, you're more likely to say, oh, my stomach tightened. Then I felt my brain. So we we have a lot more going on in our gut than we than we have measured. So there's a whole lot of of curiosities in the in the kind of research biases, but we shouldn't um, we shouldn't get caught in limiting psychedelics to medical use. Now, the medical people control a lot of the system, and they certainly should be supported. Um, But it's as as if you could only read books that would, you know, that would improve your health. And the answer is, wait, 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 I I read books that are just fun or exciting or amusing or, um, you know, there's, there's this terrific book about fungi, you know, called Entangled. And it doesn't change my life at all, but it makes my inner world richer. Should I not be, you know, do I need a prescription for that? Okay, so... That's a uh, not even a bias. That's simply a reporting that psychedelics have been historically, at least for the past four or 5,000 years where we have records, used both for healing and for health. Okay. Now, <laughs> what's a self? Oh, my <laughs> goodness. What is a self? <laughs> oh, a self is usually when someone, um, you're walking along and someone says, Charlie, you don't do anything. But if someone says, Tommy, you're probably going to turn around. So you know you're not someone else. That's that's the kind of <laughs> basics. Okay. Now, you've been brought up without it necessarily having been made clear that you're a single, unified, consistent self, except that it's not true. Because you know that there are things that you've done. And even as you've done them, you think, oh my God, why am I doing this? And if you've ever been in a relationship with someone like your parents or your siblings or your beloveds, sometimes they do amazingly inconsistent things. And if you say to them, how could you have done this? And they say, I don't know. Or I just felt like the right thing to do, even though now I can see maybe it wasn't and so forth. We also have, um, well, here's the simple one, okay? You are now my research subject, okay? Um, have you ever argued with yourself? Yes. Okay, who was the other person? Myself. <laughs> it had to be, right? be was nobody else in your head. And have you ever changed sides? You know, the argument convinced you. many
0: times
1: (laughs) so so that's a kind of very very uh, obvious awareness that we all have that there's something more complicated than a single self because a single self to be consistent um well we just don't have it we don't see it and so again i don't have much theory but i have a lot of observations and my observations are that people behave differently in different situations Okay, And that difference can be uh, can be a mood, but usually it's much more uh, complex than that. Um, For example, right now we're having an interview. You've got some technical equipment. Part of you is listening to what I'm saying. Another part of you is kind of planning the next question. Another part of you is thinking, is this going well? And they're all in there and they're quite different. And when we're done, you're going to take off the headphones and you're probably going to open that door behind you and you will shift into a different self. And that's healthy, normal, and why human beings are so capable of being um, able to cope in very, very different situations. And if you take another very, very um, one of the things a lot of people I noticed do, and that COVID made harder. Is they would have work clothes and non-work clothes, and it was a way, in a sense, of identifying who they were. So, if I'm a um, a plumber, I have my work clothes. If I'm a executive, I have my work clothes. And when I come home, I'm I may I will change clothes. And um, my daughter, who's a professor, uh, was particularly aware of this. Because she was suddenly teaching, um, you know, and for a while she didn't quite know what to do, but after a while she realized she would, if she were teaching online, uh, Zoom, she would change into something just to do that change so she would feel more like her professor self. So we normally, again, healthy, normal people have different selves. And the the kind of catchphrase is mental health is being in the right self at the right time, okay? Now let's imagine that you have a high stress um, business job, whatever it is. Um, And you come home and all the way home, you're still running parts of the day. And when you open the door, you have two little children. And your children say, Daddy's home. And Daddy isn't home yet. But you shift. And within a few minutes, you can be lying on the floor with small children on your stomach, throwing one in the air and laughing. And that's appropriate behavior. Sometimes you come home and you're so caught in being the self at work that maybe another member of your family says, hey, wait, you know, where are you? So we are used to shifting selves uh, effortlessly or with some effort and that obviously works better for us now i happen to have some very small dogs and i have studied them for some years and they also have more than one self they have very i won one little 10 pound rescue who feels that large dogs are so dangerous that it's important to attack them first. This is not survival linked, <laughs> okay? And this little sweet loving dog suddenly turns into this tiny little monster with sharp teeth, um, and then very very quickly stops being that. So we see it in animals as well. So that's that's the 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 point of the book your symphony of cells is to allow people to begin to, to to notice what i'm just talking about to notice in themselves and that noticing makes for a remarkably easier easier and kinder life because one of the things you do early on is you start to be more forgiving of someone who did something that you really didn't like because what you understand is very often that's a part of them and it's and it doesn't show up very often. So that's that's a that's a not a brief answer.
0: <laughs> it's a, I don't think you can do a, a brief answer about selfhood um, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Um but I was it was only yesterday, I was looking through um a couple of research papers, um coming back to to neuroscience a little bit and Yes, you can, oh. you can sigh a little bit, but I was looking at like interoception and extraception just as, as, as general terms. And I was looking at the kind of um, how people become more interoceptive, if, if that's a word, um, after like a meditation retreat, because, you know, when you're very, very alert, whether that's, you know, three hours after your waking phase when you're, you're in the morning and very alert, you know, the, the salience network, which is kind of this, this scanning network where you're all scanning your environment, you're, you're looking around, you're like, trying to absorb all, all the information around you. Um, and trying to react to that, that information around you. And then when, you know, why people, so many people find it very difficult to stick with Meditation practice is because they're so used to scanning that environment and kind of adapting, and I guess in in, in some ways, like you know, readjusting your state of mind to the environment, um, right. which kind of makes sense in in this selfhood kind of example. You you go to the family home, you're you know scanning that environment, and and you're you making sense of what self to to embody there, versus you're at work or 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 exercising or, or whatever it is. So I found it quite interesting that. Um, there's this adaptability of this network um, that can, you know, shift from being more extraceptive to interoceptive. And I was wondering, you know, if if psychedelics could could play that kind of role in kind of instead of shifting to shifting from extraception to to interoception um through a psychedelic experience and then kind of really diving into what self and the selves that sure. are being embodied in these different contexts.
1: Well, um, it's not totally clear. See, it's clear that all of selves have access to all of your capacities. So interception and extraception are again situational. I mean, the, the thing that is um, meditation is a in a, in a basically attempts to limit your outer view. I mean, I mean traditional Zen meditation um, as kind of Roshi, uh, Roshi that I dealt with for some years. She said, um, there are two ways of doing meditation. One is you face a wall and the other is you face another person. Uh, she says the wall is actually easier uh, because what you're trying to do is is stop the system that is reactive and determine what is the system that is intercepted. And that turns out to be, as is called, a practice. And what Kent Roshi would say is, the reason they call it meditation practice, and we make it as easy as possible, you get a cushion, you get a nice room, you get nothing to distract you. The purpose of meditation is so you have practiced well enough so you can make use of it in the world. And a lot of inter- a lot of meditation teachers seem to have ignored that part of it, is that meditation physiologically is beneficial, but I think Kenneth Roshi uh, was much wiser in saying the whole that a meditator should be able to function more more successfully in a world of varied possibilities. Okay, and those varied possibilities very often. Um, one makes a change in self going through a door literally um you enter a house you enter you go to a concert and as soon as you enter the concert space you're you're in a you're in a different place you're behaving differently um you know you you know we have that thing i'm going to have a good time and there are two ways you do that which is hey i'm going to have a good time and you're already even though i haven't shown up yet starting to have a good time the other is I'm going to this goddamn concert, and I'm going to have a good time anyway. It's a little harder because the concert's designed to push you into the parts of your brain where it's easier to have a good time. Now, psychedelics, uh, microdosing, allows you to basically make these moves much more easily because you're physiologically actually uh, more more attuned both to inner and outer. And I'm thinking of lots of of people who've written and said, when I am microdosing, I am better at. And that ranges from uh, higher function math. Someone wrote, I took the I took the hardest math class that Harvard University offered, and I was microdosing during it. And I found it quite easy. Okay. Now, for you and I, there's no amount of psychedelics that could probably make that happen. But also, he was clearly already had a lot of skills. Um, Other people have, one that interested me was a lot of people do athletics better, but literally physically better. I can lift more weights, I can run faster. But one that was interesting is someone who was um, playing volleyball. They played volleyball, whatever level of seriousness. And they said, I don't know that I was, you know, you working the ball any better but i was very much more aware of the of everyone else on my side and the strategies that we were using so i was a more effective member of the team and that's a different set of skills so the the thing that makes microdosing hard to uh, to fathom for people is we're used to thinking in in little boxes you know i have a medication for headache i have a different one for sinus i have a different one if i have a pain in my foot um but if i'm take the other branch which is what could i do to help all those well how about a better diet oh does a diet affect the muscles of your toe well not exactly but it affects all the your whole body which includes the muscles so microdosing is is again a more general use and when people have specific problems um the most common, for example, one of the most common uses is depression will take one mental and maybe 80 um, percent of people who microdose, who have been what's called treatment resistant depression, which always means a terrible term. It's like we're blaming them. But what it means is whatever else was out there didn't work very well. And about 80 percent of those people report huge improvements in depression. and. If- we take students who say, I focus better. Uh, I can, when I now see the PowerPoint, I only need to look at it once, and I can continue making notes. I don't have to keep looking back and forth at it. That's, we're, those are two separate things. And if we take now a physical problem, let's take one that medicine doesn't understand too well, uh, migraine headaches. People with chronic migraine headaches have a very hard time. And there are medications and so forth. But what we've found is that people who microdose, and again, I don't know the percentage, but a lot, report that chronic migraines do not go away, but they diminish maybe 90%. And I remember very vividly because this was a wife of a holistic physician who'd had chronic migraines for years. And you know that she tried everything. And sh- and I wrote her a note and said, how are you doing? This was when I, was, when I track a lot of people. And she said, well, I had a, a migraine last Tuesday that lasted 36 hours. And I wrote, as you would, a kind of condolency response. You know, I'm really sorry and so forth and I hope. And she wrote, no, 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 no. She said I used to have them 20 days a month. Okay. That's a shift in the system's capacity to deal with whatever causes migrates. So we're looking at a a systemic difference that includes, as you were pointing out, different ways of of working with thought itself. But again, working with thought itself is a a developed capacity. Small children uh, don't have certain parts of it down very well. Now, also, by the way, small children don't have, as as adults, we have a very tight idea of who our, our identity is. Uh small children are how, it's a little more diffuse. Yes,
0: yeah, certainly. Um I mean the common theme amongst all of this, I'm um, kind of seeing, is that it's the capacity of our awareness or to bring awareness to each of these. Situations is what is doing the real healing, you know. Often, people who have a difficult time by themselves and are always, you know, seeking whether it's external validation or always trying to do other things to kind of get them away from the part of themselves that they they don't want to, you know, yeah. It's the it's the cloudiness or the the darkness inside of them that they're trying to avoid. Where something like microdosing can, I guess shift that mentality of almost it being pleasurable to lean into the resistance that your body creates like i think of it in in that that mathematics um example where you know having quote unquote a, a greater capacity to be aware of of the situation then right. leads to you know you're leaning into that resistance and almost having intrinsic pleasure from the resistance and then that in itself leads to to growth and expansion?
1: Well, we, we do things. And only because we're doing them consciously, would we do them at all? Is if uh, when you go to the gym, your goal is to go beyond your comfort. Your goal is to push yourself to the point of either stress or pain um, or or something. And You wouldn't, you know, if if it wasn't taught to you that that's really good for you, you would never do it. Here, here is a weight that's more than you can handle. Carry it around, and it will not do you any good. No, I won't do that. So we set up situations that push our edges, and we like to, because uh, you never know how far you can go unless you go a little farther than that. And realize that's too much um, my my brother uh, who was spent a lot of time in Africa, climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and when you and and by the time you get up there, you have very little oxygen and you are uh, you probably have altitude sickness, and the only reason you got that far is the the African who has come with you as a guide has kept saying, "You can do this, you can do this." And so my brother um, made it to the top and was lying there, feeling that the death would be infinitely more, more preferable. And he looks up and there's a little pile of rocks, maybe 20 feet high. And at the top of it, there's that, that little, um, you know, stake with a little booklet on top where you're supposed to sign in as, as if someone's going to go look. And he had made it, this was like a three-day trick, and he never made it to the top, okay? Uh, That there was a level of self-destructiveness to his body. His body said, I don't care about what your interests are. We are done. And part of what you do with microdosing is you're making a better um, arrangement with your body. Um, A lot of people, and this was an interesting surprise, people would be taking it. Um, let's say for depression or academic improvement. And after a month, we would say to them, can you just write us a little report about the month in general? And we began to get reports that said this was not what I intended. This was not my goals. But I notice that I am sleeping better, that I am eating better, that I have returned to or expanded exercise or meditation. Um, That and that I'm using less marijuana, alcohol, coffee, among others. And when we looked at that, think of it why do you have a cup of coffee? Well, you want the rush, or you want not to be tired. Um, you also may want to be in a social situation, but for some reason, you don't ever do decaf in those social situations. So you and alcohol, you want to feel that bit of relaxation, that bit of letting go of some social roughness, so forth. But if you are feeling better about your system is working better, you have less interest in that. Now, gee, I feel so good this morning. Coffee's just no not just no need. Okay, that's a shift. And so that's the shift that we're looking at. Um, the, the, see, when you do scientific studies, you, you try and have as few variables as possible. So you miss all the kind of surprises. When citizen science happens, you, you are looking for this. You know, you get the surprises because people will do things that you never could ask them to do in a laboratory setting. And so how did we find out that microdosing changes diet? OK, uh, that's a really hard thing to study, but it's a really easy thing if you're looking at your own body. And, and, and here's the, the, the I'm thinking of a very early, uh, wonderful report writer He used to write long, long, long things every day about. I know more about his life than my own, perhaps. But at one day, he's a real junk food user and he's also been a heavy cannabis user and his cannabis use is way down. And he says, I was at a restaurant. And by God, I wanted the salad. And he he understood the revelation that his body would rather have the salad than, you know, the chips. Um, so that's the, the way we're discovering how microdoses seem to um, improve your capacity to be more of who you would rather be.
0: Yeah, it's essentially like a it's a shift in your identity. And then you're building up this new ev- evidence for this new identity and being able to then reinforce that through yeah, habits and, and healthy behaviors that then, you know, obviously will, will cascade into a healthier version of yourself. Yeah. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Um in terms of I mean, the self and I mean across history through religious texts and and everything we have this you know idea that there's this one essential self right there's one god there's one self right what i was kind of going to ask because i guess this idea of god or consciousness um is this one essential self and perhaps all of the types of selves that are I don't know if we want to think of it hierarchically where it's the essential self and then the, the consciousness and its contents, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, the different variations of states of mind or selves. Is, is that kind of line up with that idea or how does the idea of multiple selves differ from theology?
1: Well, um, remember theology, when people talk theology, they're usually talking Christianity, Judaism, Islam all of which have the notion that there's a single god. Now, unfortunately, um, the rest of the world doesn't share that particular point of view about divinity. Um, And even if you actually look look at something that probably we remember called the Ten Commandments, and one of them says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, what does that suggest? From Jehovah's point of view, there are other gods. (laughs) And if you actually read the Old Testament, there's all kinds of moments when Jehovah says, I will not have you worshiping those other gods, which happen to be, in most cases, agricultural gods, because the Jews stopped being a wandering group and were now settled. And when you settled, your crops will mean a lot more to you than your sheep used to mean when when you were sheepherder. So, obviously, agricultural gods are really people you want to be on the right side of. So, there's a lot in the Old Testament that is clearly uh, polytheistic. Judaism becomes monotheistic only much, much later after Babylon and a lot of things that we're not interested in. Uh, if you look at almost all religions, even ones that have only one, they have one central god, but they have a lot of kind of minor beings. You know, um, there are devils and there's angels. And if you actually know Catholicism a little, there's nine levels of angels, um, all of whom are, you know, semi-divine characteristics. So it's not clear that one God is the best model for a universe that seems to be somewhat complex. And if you go into Buddhism, where there is no divinity except that everything is divine. If you go to Hinduism, where there are aspects of humanity characterized by various gods. Um, if you go to ancient Greece, um, the ancient Greece had obviously a lot of gods who were very, very human. They fought with each other. They slept with each other's uh, wives. They um, did all kinds of things. Uh, but if you went to a Greek temple, there was a lot of these gods, and you should be, you know, friendly to all of them. But they had another one called the unknown god, in case you missed somebody. So there's a lot of other models. And, of course, all earlier religious traditions were had a multiplicity of divinities. So, so we have to look at that. Um, the notion that there's an essential self... Um, Usually, people like the term higher self um, and so forth. And, And we know we've made, you know, Jordan Gruber and I that wrote the book, we know, we talked about it at length. And we decided the problem with the higher essential self is that there's no evidence for it. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And the test case that we came up with is if you have a higher, best self that always makes the best decisions and gives you only terrific advice, what is its favorite restaurant? Mm-hmm. And when I do that with people, they, they are startled and they're mad at me. And then they try and answer the question and they realize that the quote, essential, higher, etc self has no attributes. It doesn't have a favorite color. You know it doesn't have a a, a musical group it prefers um, it doesn't have any friends <laughs> okay so if if we are not sure whether it exists we're back to what are the best selves at the best time and for instance um, I would say I'm kind of a peaceful person um, I avoided being in the military because I felt that killing people was just I just wasn't didn't feel right, whatever reasons. But then, if someone is about to or is attacking one of my children, I and I would throw myself on them and try and beat the crap out of them because that would be the appropriate behavior at that moment. So the question is not what's my best self, but what's the best self to be right now. Okay, I'm. Um, I was listening to somebody tell their part of their life story and he was trying to make a call to a very large company and he was selling a product and he ends up getting the secretary to the ceo of of this multi-billion dollar company and he is he freaks out and she says hold on he's at a board meeting off you know off campus but I can get through to him right now. Click, (laughs) okay? So this kind of very junior salesman in this company suddenly is talking to the CEO of this multi-billion dollar company in the middle of a very important meeting. And there was about a 20 minute discussion. And the guy said, well, we'll set up a meeting next week with my vice presidents. And I'd like to have you present. Okay, nice story, okay? (laughs) You know, it, was, it wasn't exactly the. what's the best self at the best time. Sometimes you have to just allow the, your inner wisdom to pick, okay? See, we know, for example, that if you give animals a wide diet, including junk food, after a very short time, they will eat, on the whole, a very healthy diet. You can also do this with very small children. Once you get to be older children, they will eat junk forever uh, because they have been trained in their culture. So we have an internal set of of kind of guidance, uh, but it, it doesn't have its own identity. And your goal is to be the best self you can be at any moment, not this elevated and somewhat invisible higher self. You know, you say, "Hey, I'd like to go out on a date with you." She says, "No, I don't like you much. Could you only bring your highest self?" You say, "Well, okay."
0: <laughs> yeah, and I suppose, in terms of, of of selfhood and and that essential self that we're kind of coming back to and forth from, um, I mean, I, I can kind of imagine that people are thinking about. Well, it, it's not a self per se. This this higher self. It's more just like the essence of of existence
1: yeah it's your opinion
0: Hmm. of what's the best i mean yeah it's like the 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 essence of of time and space in as a as this cosmic consciousness um and well let's let's continue on with this discussion of of selfhood as it relates to the integration process after psychedelic experience i think this is is really interesting space um because you know as I was mentioning before, you know, people can kind of go about their day and not necessarily be in in too much pain, but when they experience themselves or have that time of solitude, and then these things come up and they don't know how to deal with themselves and don't know how to to react to that, how how would you, I guess, open the discussion around how we can use this understanding of our different selves in the integration process after this, I guess, a high-dose psychedelic experience has been had?
1: Well, let me be radical just for a moment. Um, Psychedelic Explorer's Guide is a beginner's guide. It's to allow people to have safe, effective psychedelic experiences, and it's got a bunch of research, and it's got a bunch of wonderful stories. Selves is necessary to understand integration. Your symphony of selves is about understanding who you actually are. And how you can work best with that collection. It's as if, and we, you know, there's a phrase that it takes a family to raise a child. Well, it takes, you are a family. Okay. And what happens in a psychedelic experience, high dose, is you let go of whatever your belief was about your identity. And for a few hours, you find that I'm not Jim Fadiman, but I'm not gone. In fact, I can see way over in the corner Jim Fadiman. So it turns out that I'm more than that, and he doesn't know that. In fact, he's probably only can imagine what it's like because he isn't in this higher space. So when we, in fact, all the little Jim Fadimans are equally not aware of necessarily their totality, just as... You know, the, the cells in my in my arm may not really know much about the cells in my kidney. But they sure work together well. Okay, so my goal, my goal is to have it all work together well. After a psychedelic, you can, in a sense, decide what, which of your cells needs to be more active, more present. Um, I mean, I did a, a study a long time ago, and I just asked couple of hundred people what had changed in their lives since a high-dose psychedelic not their internal belief system not their awareness that we're all one and that peace and love are all there is or that i've i won't die because that's nice Um, and it might be very fundamental but i was asking really really itty bitty questions like do you eat more vegetables or do you eat less vegetables Do you watch television more or less? Do you spend more or less time with your children? Okay, so those are the questions I was asking. And what we found is that people made hundreds of small changes in their behaviors, most of them in a way, in a direction that, that they thought was more healthy. So that integration is how do you not necessarily bring back these magnificent vistas, but how do you begin to be more appropriate in the right ways? See, when someone says, I play more with my children, um, my value system is that's a positive, okay? And I know when I'm a child, that's a positive, okay? So how do I more easily become parent when I have a meeting the next day that may lead to the sale or bankruptcy of my company? How do I I not occupy myself at the wrong time with the wrong ideas? How is it when I get into bed and I want to make love with someone, what do I have to not be thinking about before I can switch over to being a more loving person, to being physically both desiring and desirable? And those kinds of are not decisions, but that's helped when people after psychedelics notice they have more flexibility, they can actually make changes. And and we actually had a rule of thumb um, when we were when I was working in a psychedelic clinic. This is when things were legal. If anyone can go back that far, we were also we didn't have fire then, but we did have legal psychedelics. And. One of the. Oh, I got so caught up in my own cleverness that I lost my
0: point. <laughs> <laughs> Back when psychedelics were illegal before fire.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we actually realized that we then advised people after they had this one transcendent experience not to make any career or personat- or, or kind of life changes for at least six weeks. And we did that because we had a, a guy who had a very powerful and wonderful experience on a Thursday, and he met Clement on a Friday, and he married her on Sunday. And we looked at that, and we thought, ah! <laughs> He's in such a high, loving, beautiful space that she found him you know, irresistible, and it was probably quite accurate. But we know that that particular what's called now an afterglow has about a six-week life for a single high-dose experience. Um, so we basically said to people, you know, don't don't uh, quit your job, don't change your marital status, you know, don't get married or divorced um, for about six weeks, because that's integration time. That's when you take the best you can from what you've learned or discovered or exposed about yourself and put it into practice. So there we are.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, it, it. I mean, it's really about forming new identities and being able to adapt in new situations and being, I guess, plastic to the idea of behaving different ways in in different contexts. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a beautiful way that, um, can really, I guess, open up, um, the capacity to change.
1: Yeah. It's, and that's really beautifully said. It's opening up the capacity for change. It's not changing. It's opening up the capacity. And the purpose of integration is to encourage and support the changes that you feel now you can make. Now, also, if you've let go of, say, a mental illness in the psychedelic experience, um, you have major changes to look at because you've built your life around coping. You know, um, when I, I read reports for people, this is more for microdosing. Uh, where they say I've been depressed for 23 years, you know. Here's my list of nine medications I've taken, and I've had therapy, and they say, "Oh, I'm back. I'm I'm the person who I feel like I am, and I have a whole lifestyle and a whole friendship pattern and a whole work pattern based on being depressed. So, to do that with in isolation is hard. To do that in integration is like it's it's like joyful meetings. It's just like if you went to an AA meeting and everybody said, you know, I've just stopped drinking. And everyone would be applauding everyone else. And you then remember, AA has a wonderful thing. They say, what are you going to do with your sobriety? It's a great question, which is most people who are alcoholic have a certain number of hours a day that are filled. They know what they're going to do. And all of a sudden, if they stop drinking, they have these open hours. Uh, we're now looking, actually, in a lot of companies worldwide, of a four-day week. Um, we haven't, we don't have a culture yet designed for it. So that's another, it's another kind of integration. Gee, what am I going to do with three-day weekends? Or what do I do when I have three-day weekends and my kids don't, or my spouse doesn't, right? So we've got a lot of interesting, it's a little bit, you know, that's kind of liberation. Psychedelic experiences, high doses are, and it's a Buddhist term, it's called liberation, which is you let go of the attachments to things that are transitory, which includes your identity. Mm. And And and, I feel that... Yeah.
0: No, go. I feel that... um... You know, when you're just talking about that you know what are you going to replace all of that time that you spend, whether it's working or or whether an alcoholic spends that much time doing it. It's like you needing those, I guess replacement habits and and reforming your identity to figure out like how are you going to to, to fill that time because, you know like I was saying before people often don't know what to do with themselves in in those situations because they haven't even allowed the the opportunity for change so yeah it's i think it's it's fantastic <laughs>
1: <laughs> well you know one of the questions that people who have no psychedelic experience ask is why are you doing this you know isn't uh, isn't this reality enough and that's and the answer is enough is not necessarily the best you can get and there's a there was a song in world war world war one was a very curious war for both australia and the us in that a lot of people who had no experience outside of rural life very narrow small town rural life were exposed to europe and there's a song from world war one that says how are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? Okay, And uh, I know that a lot of people I know from Australia have a, have a wander German term for wandering a year, where you leave Australia and you travel around for a year if you can. Uh, that's to prevent you from limiting yourself for the rest of your life.
0: Mm. what i was psych, um
1: psychedelics are like a a very large world tour very quickly
0: <laughs> what i was um going to say just earlier um and then i also lost my train of thought as as it often goes um oh, is that as i was relating to you know people um where they commit so much of their time to whatever it may be and then all of a sudden they have all this free time and of course it's the easiest thing to do is just or back to what you were doing to fill in that time. Um, but I feel that, you know, it's structure and, you know, intention that creates the freedom in the first place. And, you know, when we have too much time on our hands, often there's just, you know, our, our brain and body and our self are just trying to, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily know what to do with itself. So having these replacements and, you know, forming a new identity and finding new passions is almost critical in behavior change because, you know, if you're going to take something away, you know, we all have 24 hour days, um, eight hours of that. Hopefully you're, you're sleeping, but the rest of it, we we do need to, to fill it in some way or another. So having, you know, this new self or, or building this new personality has to kind of be accompanied by, new habits and behaviors um, to be able for for, to be long term change.
1: Yeah, well, that's the that behavior change model is kind of what I started with, with what are are the behavior changes people just would try to make. And what we find after high dose psychedelics is that you're open to healthier activities, you're open to healthier relationships, Um, you're open to Um, More novelty. See, we all have a a level where it's too much novelty. No, and again, being personal, I am not attracted to skydiving. Okay. Uh, Just, I can't think of anything that I, uh, you know, that attracts me to it. And the people I know have skydived have all indicated that it was one of the great experiences of their lives. So that's a limitation of mine that i'm I'm willing to to own up to, uh, but if I really you know if I was in a family and everybody skydove and I always sat on the ground and made lunch for people um, I would look at that in psychedelics and see was there something there that i'm that I'm deliberately cutting myself off from that doesn't benefit me and the answer might be yes, and the answer might be no, no, you know. You've learned a lot about making lunches, whatever it is. Um, So, there's no right way to live. There are wrong ways, and the wrong ways are usually including hurting other people. You know, we're very, very down on adults who hurt children. We are less down on, but we're still down on adults that hurt adults. We're a little less clear on hurting ourselves. Psychedelics suggest start with not hurting yourself, and the rest will follow and that's probably if one you know if psychedelics had a message um, and the message is you know be your be yourselves, be more be more human you know the uh, the Buddha is is defined as Buddha is a normal human being. that's the definition of Buddha, which is he is simply able to express and feel what is open to everyone.
0: As nature intended.
1: Yeah, as nature intended, and nature gave us these very unusual plants. See, one of the things that's curious is there's psilocybin mushrooms, and we have a receptor in our brain that exactly works with them, okay? We have a few more receptors that are less well-studied, but that's, we, you know, we know one, and there are others the psilocybin was was in the mushroom before there were human beings on the planet okay now it's unlikely except in a fairly long range planning divinity that god said well i think i'm going to make these mushrooms with psilocybin and you know 15 million years from now i'm going to take this primate and so forth and so on impossible The other is that there is a natural expression of awareness built into a lot of things, and there are a lot of ways to get there. Uh, Meditation works. Fasting works. Trance dancing works. Prayer works. Being in a loving enough relationship works. And psychedelics work. So we have a lot of, you know, the system, as it should be, um, has multiple points of entry. It's not fail safe because we fail, but we have a lot of ways to recover and to repair and to restore and to revive um, ourselves. And psychedelics, I think are among the more uh, flashy, the more amazing and exciting. uh, I was talking to a number of undergraduate students and, and a woman said, is it true that using mushrooms just once could change your whole attitude about the world. And I said, well, there are two two areas where I know that's true. One is just what you said. The other is college. College is supposed to do exactly that. It's supposed to change your view of the world, only it does it very slowly and with lots of ways to not benefit. Uh, Mushrooms are designed to to kind of put your, put your concerns aside and allow your system to work in a way that it is designed for, but has, doesn't get much use.
0: Yeah, perfectly put. And, you know, often I, I speak to a lot of neuroscientists in this space and, you know, I actually, that's what I want to, want to get into neuroscience, but also understand how reductionist and, and frustrating it can be when, neuroscientists say "Oh, you know you know attached to the 5-hd2 a receptor, and this is the cause of that and you know we need to know more about biological mechanisms before we can actually inform practice where you know it's exactly with this it's it's a never-ending loop you can you can always find out more i mean you're just looking at the the physical observational nature of it through technology so sometimes it's it's annoying to to hear that You know, we need to to find out more about this biological mechanism to therefore, you know, be able to accurately inform the practice to to psychiatrists and the like. So, yeah, the nice thing is, is
1: it's nice to know more. And the question with anything is, when do you know enough? And um, what it is, is uncertainty is uncomfortable for most people. Um, I taught for a while in something called design engineering. And design engineering is people build stuff. And we had graduate students, all of whom were engineers, some of whom were gonna go on to be design engineers. Those were the ones that liked uncertainty. See, if you're inventing something, it's never existed before. The chances of it working the first time are very, very small. But, No one's ever tried either. And there's another kind of science which says we can make improvements. We can make small improvements there. We will know more, but we're not taking much risk. And what I've seen is the people who take enormous risks, we only hear about the ones that succeed. Most of them fail. You know, um, Musk, Says, I'm going to invent a machine where you can do tunnels by just digging a hole like a mole does. And everybody says, we've been building tunnels, you know, for decades. We've built them underwater. You know, it, it's not going to work. And he says, well, it might. <laughs> and he's willing to put, you know, uh, millions of dollars and people on top of it, and it, it's working. Um, most of us would have run the other way much earlier on. Um, that's not saying he's a good or bad person, but he's someone who is very comfortable with massive uncertainty. And what I think psychedelics do is they, they, they allow you to, to, to realize that while you don't know practically a lot about most things, you know enough to function. And the neuroscientists are people who like to do that. Okay, and they their problem is not that they don't like to do that. Their problem is they want to convince you that they're more important than perhaps they are. For if we take um, if we take peyote, we know that it's been used successfully, literally for 5000 years. If we take psilocybin and we look at at the archaeological evidence of mushroom stones, and so forth. It's been used for thousands of years. I don't think the Aztecs knew the mechanism. Mm -hmm. But then again, let's take something which is a little easier, which is if I have an apple, I have no idea what the mechanism is when I bite into it and it is nourishing. I can tell that it's sweet, but that's about it. And it has a certain texture, which is not a determinant of healthy or not. But I have decided that things in nature that have sugar in them are designed for things to eat them. Now that's probably only one of sugar's many, many mechanisms because it's an energy source and so forth. Um, We manage with remarkably little information about almost everything. And scientists are people that wanna do that. Um, poets are people who want to explore how language can change consciousness. Um, and then there's kind of people like me that just sit in the newsroom and retell these you know, stories of other people and lives change. And the reason we wrote the selves book, as I've, I've written a self-help book, it's not bad, but like all other self-help book, at the end of a self-help book, you have to do stuff. You have to go apologize to your parents. You have to change your diet. You have to go to the gym. Um, You have to be kind to animals something. All self-help books have that, that extra, go do stuff. What's wonderful about the selves book is people read it and say, oh, I'm seeing things differently. Oh, yeah, I can see that example. Yeah, I've done that. Oh, by saying to my wife, you know once in a while when you do that thing it drives me crazy i don't I, that's just part of you and i don't like that part but i love the rest of you cuz for instance most of us have a a relative that we don't want to invite to major family events and either 15 years ago you know uncle abner who we all loved But 15 years ago, he cheated your father in a real estate deal and we haven't talked to him since. Chances are Uncle Abner is just as nice as ever, but he has a part of himself that that took advantage of someone else. And once we get that that's that's one of yourselves, you don't have to throw everybody else out. You know, it's like, here's this family of eight children and one of them is really awful. Therefore, I don't wanna see any of them. That's crazy. And and we do it. So what have we found with cells is people basically say, I like myself more, I like other people more, and life makes more sense because I understand what's, when people are changing cells or not in the correct cell. Um, um, my professor daughter travels heavily, and we got a little note from her. She hadn't traveled in a couple of years because of COVID, and she's up at 4.30. There's an Uber coming to take her to an airport, etc. And she writes a note. She says, I am, I am hoping that the self of mine, which is really good at this kind of travel, shows up. And she indicates how unhappy she is, how difficult it is. She's afraid the Uber won't come. And then as the letter goes on, at some point during the day, she reports, ah. I, my travel self appeared, and then she talks about all kinds of solving problems without anxiety, okay? Now, one of the reasons we wrote the selves book is she was the one who said over the years, dad, you have to write that book, okay? (laughs) Because we understand that it makes life easier when you're seeing reality the way it is. Um, Remember the earth, most people for a certain amount of time and certainly the Middle Ages felt the earth was flat. And most of the time it flats okay. It's a little tricky if you're at the ocean and you see that ship on the horizon going down. But hey, it's all right. But for astronomers who were able to measure and, and see the planets, imagine designing the orbit, okay, when the earth is the center. And there are some unbelievably fascinating, you know. Um, drawings with these loops and little strange things that happened to make it fit. So when we got that the sun was the center of the solar system, there was this enormous wave of relief in the, the sciences, particularly astronomy, and huge changes and improvements were made. Okay? So letting go of the way it isn't unified self allows the possibility of seeing the world more accurately, and it's a lot easier to function when it's more accurate.
0: and yeah i mean when we're able to identify various aspects of ourself that we might love or or not love um coming to the common place of just pure acceptance and love and compassion to firstly understanding yourself and realizing that you know your identity and your personality is always constantly being refined and improved and there's no
1: well and you're looking You're always looking for the, what's the best way I can be in this situation. You yeah. know, I don't wanna to go to my boss at work and give him or her this incredibly intense hug and then kiss him on the neck, right? But I also don't wanna to say to my wife, you know, I'd like to see a spreadsheet of what we're having for dinner. Okay, but both of those are perfectly sane things to do in the right situation.
0: And yeah, I mean it is yeah, knowing how to adopt and change our self and our the emotion and and the physical load that that comes with um those identity changes and being adaptable to to the environment and and I guess knowing all the different parts of yourself and, and how you can use all those and leverage those um in the best way possible. Now We are coming towards the end of of our conversation and I've thoroughly enjoyed the discussion. Is there anything else you'd like to add, or is there any other passions or interests that you're working on currently?
1: Well, I'm working at the moment on pulling together a lot of this microdose work and also putting in some of the history because I'm, I'm a part of the early history and, uh, it's that part is kind of vanity press but having just been reading a biography of, of Stuart Brand, a remarkable biography called The Whole Earth, um, understanding the history of human beings is inherently valuable because we all are puzzled on why, how other people came to be how they are. And the reason, again, uh, it's a little bit of an info commercial for the selves book, but it's so much easier to function when you're not trying to uh, to make those orbits, those crazy orbits, to make people fit into consistency. Um, it, you know, now now that we've you know we've worked in this way for some years, um, it's painful when people um, denigrate parts of themselves rather than say, you know, there's a part of me that needs help. Just as again, think of your family. Um, there's there's a therapies which say we're going to take your you know the cells, the parts of you that are terrible, and we're going to fuse them into yourself. And I thought, but nobody asks them. Do they think that's a good idea? You know, it's kind of like saying, well, I have eight children. One is misbehaving. I think I'll kill it. <laughs> you don't do it that way, <laughs> okay? So you don't do it to yourself either. So a lot of people, and I think all of us have parts that say, oh, my God, I just did something that is that the rest of us really don't like. And sometimes that person needs that part of you needs help, needs therapy. And that's fine. One of the problems with therapy is the person that needs it often doesn't isn't the one that shows up. And the nice part about high dose psychedelics is everybody gets the day off and the unifying principle of your identity um, is, is so dominant that all of those lesser versions of yourself become visible for what they are, which is lesser versions. they're parts. And there's a, a Hindu story about the body, parts of the body arguing about who's more important now i forget who wins but it's either the stomach or the anus okay <laughs> uh, but it's a it's a kind of silly story right because what part isn't valuable okay and there are parts of us and the, what we've found is when when you start to look at the part of yourself that you don't like that most of you don't like and rather than let's beat it up <coughs> or hide it in the closet You say, well, what do you need? Um, Tim Ferriss, uh, who's insanely absorbed in in studying his own body and his own reactions, uh, has a diet system. And it's a very tough diet for six days a week. And he says, on the seventh day, you take uh, a splurge day. Which means, and he then describes, unbelievable amount of trashy junk that he can manage to stuff in in one day. And knowing that he can do that makes it very easy to be on the very strict eating program, the rest of it. And not having it is basically, we all know that that the word for diet is followed by failure. And it's failure because you haven't really gotten the rest of the body to agree. And so what Tim is saying, well, there's a part of me that really doesn't like this at all. And I have to give it time or else it will misbehave so so be be kind to yourselves and get to know them better Um, and one of them might be you know there's an argument is there a conductor to the orchestra and the answer is maybe if if the orchestra votes for one
0: perfect now you've You've been brilliant Um, this whole conversation and I, I thoroughly appreciate the time and energy and space that you give to our organisation and the time that you've set aside today to to speak with me and, and share all this information with the community. So I really appreciate that. Um, If people are wanting to obviously reach out to you or look into your work, they can obviously um, by psychedelic explorers guide and your symphony of selves. Is there any other way that they can um, reach out or, or find more information?
1: Well, for information, that's the basics. Now, when people write me and say, um, well, if you go to microdosingpsychedelics.com, if you go to microdosing that's one word, um, one of the questions that we answer, you know, is can I take a microdose with some medication or supplement or something and we have there's about 180 responses to that question these are all people who've said i'm using such and such and i microdosed fine uh, on that site we have in large letters at least two or three places don't ask us where to get anything <laughs> okay um and uh, you know and i can be reached particularly if you have a good story at at my email which is and at gmail and I try to answer most things uh, and sometimes I screw up.
0: Wonderful. Well, Jim, thank you very, very much. Uh, I thoroughly appreciate your time and this conversation.
1: Well, and I particularly want to shout out to the people that I don't know who would have been my friends had I moved to Tassie. (laughs) And I still may make it.
0: Well, it could have been. Yes, you're never too old. Come on down to Tassie. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and for your interest and support in mental health and psychedelic therapy. Please be sure to check out all of the links that I've attached to this episode and also other episodes for ways that you can support the continuation of this podcast. In any case, thank you for your ongoing support by simply listening to this episode and your willingness to learn more about psychedelic therapy and mental health. So for that's it. I will see you here for the next one thank you so much for listening to this episode and for your interest and support in mental health and psychedelic therapy please be sure to check out all of the links that i've attached to this episode and also other episodes for ways that you can support the continuation of this podcast in any case thank you for your ongoing support by simply listening to this episode and your willingness to learn more about psychedelic therapy and mental health. So for all that said, I will see you here for the next one.